I worked with Julie Fouché back in 2015, and she in the the very first workout that that I asked her to do was a 400 for time, and she got a panic attack in the middle of it. Um, and the reason why she got a panic attack was because she didn't look at workouts and come up with a game plan. She just would do them. And part is is that there is when you strategize about a workout, there is always what we call a sticking point. And that sticking point is where a workout gets real. Um, It's the point when you cross over into a non-sustainable pace and it's your, your brain is telling you, if you don't slow down, we're going to be severely compromised. But the key is, is knowing when you cross over into that non-sustainable pace that you're close enough to the finish line where you're confident you could bring it home and the body blows up just as you cross the line. Every single workout or event that we do has that moment where we're crossing into that non-sustainable pace. And the key is timing it so that when you do cross over, you have enough energy to make it to the finish. This is the Limitless Athlete Podcast. I'm Tom Foxley, founder of Mindset Rx and your host. And I believe our greatest opportunities to grow and to win are contained inside the experiences which make us the most uncomfortable. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm willing to work as hard as I can. There is no past, there's no future, there's just this moment right here. If I did that, if I can get through that, like, come at me changing how I saw myself, like as a man, not just as, as an athlete. It's okay that I struggle. It's okay. That's part of the deal. It's how I respond. Today on the Limitless Athlete Podcast, you'll be listening to a conversation between aerobic coach to the biggest names in CrossFit, Chris Hinshaw, and myself. Amongst many other pearls of wisdom, Chris discusses the sticking point, that moment in every workout when you're in the most discomfort and most likely to quit. It's these moments, both in workouts and yeah, in wider life too, where you have the greatest opportunity to grow. If you listen to one part of you, you panic or you slow down or you quit or you act in a non-serving way. If you listen to the other, probably quieter voice of you, you'll confront an inner demon and add proof to the story that you need to hear to fulfill your potential. Because of this, we have to predict when we'll feel at our most uncomfortable and prepare our minds for that moment. The better prepared you are, the more likely you are to come out on top. Alongside this idea of the sticking point, Chris and I discussed so, so much um, why athletes must take risks, uh, Cara Webb's utter sincerity with achieving her goals and moving beyond the normal, predictable why. Um, One of my favourite bits, how Sarah Sigmund's daughter's socks taught Chris how to coach more subtly Um, how boredom destroys endurance, the role fear plays in performance in both a serving and a non-serving way, and so, so much more. Um, This is really one of those episodes that I loved recording. I felt very, very privileged to have Chris on the show, and I just couldn't wait to get out to you guys. So enjoy the show with Chris Hinshaw. Let's start off with 
a very kind of obvious question and the a one to to frame the rest of the conversation with and when we're talking about your own mindset and mentality and getting to where you are i think it's important to consider this where did you grow up and what was growing up like for you i grew up in california um I'm a third generation Californian, so yeah, I I I do like uh, the ocean. Uh, we spent a lot of time in the in the water. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, my my father was an all American swimmer. Um, he was a walk on at um, the University of Pacific, um, and swimming was always a part of our 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 household. Uh, I have. A younger brother, a younger sister, and a older sister. Uh, all of them were all American swimmers, and then, of course, their children all became all American swimmers, and some went on to Olympic trials and and all of that. So, health and fitness was always a part of the house. So, uh, even if you became an all American in something, that wasn't a surprise. As a matter of fact, it wasn't something that you were even praised upon. It was almost like an expectation, and so. There was a lot of 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 that in the house where the the children were I, w- I don't want to say overachievers they were just solid achievers and it, if you didn't go out and and participate in in sport um, and excel that would be a surprise um, and that's the way I grew up college for example. It wasn't that you weren't going. It was always you're going to go off to the university when you finish high school, and it was just factual. So I, I, I grew up in California, and um, you know, with the the environment in California back when I was growing up, there was a tremendous amount of opportunity to to be whoever you wanted to be, um, and my parents supported that so long as I was um, keep that let's just say my parents would say, so long as you're keeping the doors open, meaning that if you make mistakes, if you don't push to your potential, if you don't make effort, then doors will close. And what you want to do is have as many doors open as possible. And the doors represented opportunity. And that was really the focal point of of making sure that as you move through life, doors stayed open. And that could be through your own effort, um, physically, or it could be um, from an educational standpoint or relationship building. And so, um, growing up, I always, you know, I always had a quarter in my pocket, um, and that gave me uh, an opportunity to do some pretty cool things as as a kid. But I never took advantage of those ever. I always appreciated those opportunities. Um, and the the learnings that my parents passed down, and today I think that that that's a cornerstone in in uh, my methods and my approach to helping others. Those lessons that your parents passed down were those explicit lessons, or were they more implicit in the way they act? Some were very explicit, like you know, if if you get arrested, don't call me. Um, <laughs> So there were things where they were crystal clear on on their expectations, but others, you know, one of the things that's very difficult about raising children, and I have three, is you you have them and you're realizing that as they're moving through their teen years, all of a sudden the realization comes in. It's like, wow, they're going to be 18 soon. And they're going to have the freedom to make all their own choices. And are they ready for those choices? 
And a lot of parents, they all of a sudden realize that with a year to go, and they're radically making all these shifts. And my parents didn't do that. They, they always wanted me to try different things. For example, I hated the sport of swimming. I was a skinny little kid and the swimming pools in California were never heated. They were, you know, heated by the sun. And because of that, they were always under uh, temperature. And in the wintertime, I was just freezing all the time. And I don't know how many bathroom breaks I would take during a two hour swim practice, but I'll bet you it was 30 minutes of bathroom breaks. And I just stand there in the shower trying to get warm. My parents let me quit swimming. So long as I went into a different sport, I went into the sport of baseball. And if you've never played baseball as a kid, and then you try and do it as a teen, you're not going to get any playing time. And there I was out in right field. And um, yeah, that was a disaster, but they were supportive. They still went to all of my games, even though I'd strike out every time and I'd never catch a fly ball. They'd still be there. Uh, Eventually without their pressure, I went back into the sport of swimming um, because it was something that I had a lot of experience in. What did you say they did well in, in that scenario? Giving me the opportunity to fail um, and giving me the, the understanding that if I do fail, they'll be there. And that is a, a very important part of, of raising children and, and, and coaching athletes is that they have to have an opportunity to take risk and they need to know that things will be okay. Um, if that, that, that effort doesn't, doesn't pan out. And that's a very important lesson that, that I learned from my parents is that, you know what, you need to try, you need to take risks. You need to do what others aren't willing to do so that you're not finishing exactly where you did the year before. And that happens. We see it all the time in sport. You know, people say that they want to do things, they want to win, they want to, you know, climb the leaderboard. Well, if you're doing what everybody else is doing, why are you surprised that you're right back in the same spot you were a year ago? You have so, to be extraordinary and do different. And if you don't, then why are you surprised? It feels like, um, or it can feel like to the untrained mind that that risk-taking, that failure is an encounter with something bad. Um, how do you see that turning up, that that opinion that, okay, this is a bad thing to happen. I'm, I'm afraid of taking risk. How do you see that with athletes? Um, I mean, as far as their, their, their unwillingness to take risk. Yeah. What does that look like? So here's, I'll give you an example. So when I started working with Rich Froning, this was in 2014 and he famously walked in, in a, uh, a very long time domain event called triple three in the 2014 CrossFit games. And he contacted me to help him with his endurance. And there wasn't an, an issue in terms of my ability to, to improve his, his performances in longer time domains, that was going to be an easy fix. But what if these methods that I had made him a worse CrossFitter? Like here you are, you're taking the four-time CrossFit Games champion. And yeah, okay, you made his endurance better, but you ruined him as an athlete. And that would be a problem. Same thing with a Matt Frazier. I met a Matt Frazier in 2014. And here he is, he's, he's comes from a weightlifting background, 
And there was no question that I could help support his, his cardio requirements. But what if I, I ruined him in terms of strength? And what was really interesting about the two of them was they realized that if they didn't fix these, these weaknesses, they would never be able to do the things that they wanted to do. And they were willing to, to take a risk. As a matter of fact, Matt Frazier told me, he says, you know what? I never want to finish second again. And I know that if I don't fix this, that I won't win. And I need to fix this. And if it knocks me out of the top 10, so be it. I want to win. And that's the difference is that they're willing to take a risk, an unknown, because they know if they don't fix it, they're not going to achieve what their goals are. And for me, I respect that. I respect it as much as the person that comes in and says, I just want to finish where I did last year. I just want to go. I just want to make the top 10, but don't tell me you want to win. And then you don't want to take risk. So that risk is an essential part of growth. Like the, the advance almost towards failure. It's like, I'm going to see failure as a good thing or see failure as, an, as a step along the path. How are you encouraging that? when you see that or when you, when you see an absence of that mentality and someone is saying like, I, I want to win, I, I, I need to win. And you can tell they don't have that ability to tolerate risk or failure. How are you encouraging that when you work with them? Well, so part of it is, is that it's about confidence. And what we see all the time is, is a lacking in confidence in a variety of areas. And so what, what we must do is, is, not, not directly um, address these, these insecurities. I mean, part of it is, is, is you know, I was a very, very um, small kid. Um, it took me late to develop. I wasn't good at anything, no sports, I, nothing, until I reached puberty and got into my early 20s. And then things started to happen. Um, and let's be honest, I knew that. And I lacked a tremendous amount of confidence in those spaces. I, I didn't understand you know, why I wasn't good in anything. I was a kid. And because of that, it developed a huge amount of insecurities, a huge amount. Still to this day, it's like I weigh 165 pounds, 75 kilos. And even though I could run a 540 mile at 58 years old, you know what? I'm not strong. I'm not big. And that insecurity still exists today. Um, even after all what I have accomplished. And so when, when I, I talk to athletes, um, I always I, I look at their level of confidence. And the key is, is that I have to measure their confidence with what their goals are, what their expectations are. And the last thing that I'm ever going to do is be condescending, disrespectful, sarcastic towards their goals. If they have a goal then let's go for it. Like you, if you came to me and you said, Hey, Chris, you know, I want to be able to row, um, you know, a two K row in under seven minutes. And I want to be able to run a sub five minute mile. And I would say, let's go for it until you prove to me that you can't do it. We're on track. We're going for it. And that's like, like a car web car web came to me three years ago. And this was the last big challenge that I had as a coach. And I always took on challenges as a coach to push my risk. How do you know that your methodology is sound if you're not taking a risk 
by bringing on unique athletes. And, and we see this all the time with coaches, right? They, they create one world champion and then they can never do it again. And maybe that athlete was destined to become a world champion without that coach. But can that coach take that methodology that they use to create a world champion and do it again and do it again? And so for me as a, as a coach, what I want to do is always challenge myself and take that risk to prove to myself that I, I have a decent understanding of that type of, of athlete. So a car web, when she came in, I didn't really want to take on a car web because it was very high risk. She had just placed second in the CrossFit games, lost by a couple of points. And she calls me two, three months afterwards. And I, I'll never forget it. I, I always want to understand an athlete's goals and, and their sincerity, their passion towards that particular goal. And she tells me that what she's interested in is, is running a mile under six minutes. Now, Car Webb is, is a weightlifter. If you looked at her, her legs, they're short and they're built for weightlifting, short, sturdy. And she wants to run a sub six minute mile. Now, this isn't a new athlete. This is an athlete that just got second place in the CrossFit Games by two points. So I asked her, I said, what's the fastest mile you've, ridden, you've run before? And she says, 637. And I'm like, wow, she really wants, wow. And so I asked her, I go, why? And she says, because you know what? When you race the clock, no one can ever take that away from me. If you win the CrossFit Games, maybe the workouts just lined up in your favor. But a sub six minute mile, no one will ever be able to question how good I was as a runner. And she's right. If you could break six minutes in a mile as a female, you know what? You're in rare air. That's legit. And um, I admire that. And so I took her on. And I believed until she proved otherwise that she was always going to run sub six. And that's what we need to be doing as parents and as coaches is, you know what? If you have a dream, if you have a goal, if you're ambitious, I'm sticking by you because it's hard enough to make a decision like that on your own. And so if you are that parent, that mentor, then you know what? Let's go for it. Let's go for it until you prove to me that we need more time focusing, right? Whether more workouts or more duration, because we ran into a, a hiccup. And that's what I like. That's always my approach. You know, I, I found so interesting. There was so many coaches and actually, to be honest, everyone has heard the phrase, Okay, you got one. You got to have a why. Like that kind of Nietzschean idea of he has a why can bear almost anyhow. Like it's yeah. been, it's been said time and time and time again. Almost the point where it becomes trite or it becomes cliche, and people are like, oh, you've got to have a why. You've got to you got to understand your why. And some whys are better than others. Some of them, like cars that you just talked about, you could, I could feel that through however many layers of removal that's going through 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 you through an, a digital medium and then obviously Cara's transmission of that to you like that's so many layers and I could still feel that resonance and I could still feel the pertinence of that but then there's some athletes who don't have that 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 deeper why or that kind of okay this is not only what I want to achieve why I want to achieve it but who I want to be this is like fundamentally resonating with me so I found it yeah interesting that you're able to to pick that up and you're, you're asking why in a, a kind of an active way. Yep. 
I, well, I think that part of it is the interaction between with the coach and the athlete and understanding what our roles are. And my role is, is that if you have an ambitious goal and they need to understand how ambitious it is, then we're going to have to do some extraordinary things in order to achieve those goals. And my biggest frustration is when you have goals such as that, that are very ambitious, athletes don't take it seriously. And the problem is, is that that will cause me to check out and that will ruin the relationship. And that happens a lot where athletes have these ambitious goals and yet they're not willing to, to take the risk to understand, like you said, that why, because they're, they're in this constant state of, of, of looking for, for a, a more shiny object. They're not willing to just settle. Oh, wow. Chris said that I can do a six minute mile and that's the goal. I'm going to move the bar and make it 550. That, that's a problem. They, the, 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 the issue is, is, is we need to establish this relationship and we need to be able to communicate the extraordinary situation around that goal. Um, and in many cases, it's not like running a sub six minute mile or winning the CrossFit games. It may be, I just want to be able to, to run the local 5k and to that person that is equally ambitious as winning the CrossFit games. And so the treatment that I have, it doesn't matter whether or not you just want to do that local 5k or win the CrossFit games. My treatment as a coach towards that athlete is the same. When it is a fundamental kind of resonance with, with the deepest part of themselves. Like I think I, I just wrote a kind of email blog post about this. And I think there's so many people aiming at the a podium at the CrossFit games, because that's what everyone else is aiming at. And they're kind of carried along by, um, by cultural norms or something like that. There's, it's like, okay, this is what everyone else is want. I don't, I don't really want to stand out from the crowd. Um, but it doesn't really resonate with me. And I think mm -hmm. part of that shiny ob object syndrome is they're kind of sub they're consciously saying, I want the games and subconsciously is saying, I want something more pertinent to me, something deeper, something that is kind of more attuned to my unique, probably physical capacity, but my temperament as well. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of people have these goals and they don't even understand why they even have the goal. And that, that we, we do, we do see that surface throughout the, the building of a relationship. I see it all the time. And one of the things that, you know, if you don't want to ruin someone's dream because they don't understand what their dream is, you know, they've had this dream that they wanted to become the president of the United States since they were six years old. And, they're not asking themselves, you know, now that they're in their mid twenties, why they want to still be the president. Part of it is, is, is as a coach, we have to accept those dreams. I, I, especially with the current generation today, the current generation of youth today struggles with making choices. And if they can make a decision, how dare an adult come in and destroy that dream? Because the risk that they took of just coming up with that idea is big. It's a big deal. And so if we realize that these dreams are not achievable, part of what we should always be doing as mentors, as coaches, as parents, I believe, 
is to find value in this journey to help them understand what their their competencies are outside of this goal. So like a, a good example is, is, you know, working with athletes. One of the things that I told Matt Frazier, the entire relationship, you should look at writing down your workouts, record everything. Those workouts will have value long-term. Let's Matt create a strength endurance program where you do the accessory strength and I build out a 5k training program. And what we do is we dovetail those together and we sell that as an event-based program. And I always talk to them about it. And when he came and, and he talked about retirement to me, part of what he came over and, and wanted to talk about was next steps. And you can feel the anxiety that he has. Where does he go after his career ends? And what was nice was, is that we had been talking about where his career goes after he is done competing for the last five years. And so what we want to do is we want to prepare athletes while they're preparing for their particular goal. And that's what I also, I do as a coach is that you know, in many cases, I'm older than the athletes that I coach, and I feel that there is a, a almost parental responsibility to, to provide them guidance with value that I see outside of, of their competitive side. Wait, I, th- I think a huge part of that is, is becoming brutally honest as well. Like what you're saying there is you're, is you're not sugarcoating things. You're not saying, oh, yeah, you've absolutely got, got this. You're saying like, it, like this is reality as I see it. And maybe because you do have a few more years on the athletes, that gives you some perspective and it gives you an idea of like, okay, this is what I've seen time and time again. It gives you a, a deeper sense of truth. Um, it, and I th- exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's a very difficult thing because uh, part of it is, is like when I write workouts, the athletes should be able to do them. They should be able to, unless some extraordinary event outside of, of, of my view has affected that performance in some way. And so when they don't do it right, if they don't hit the targets, I'm upfront about it. That was, that didn't go well. You bombed that. Like you need to own that. And it is important that athletes realize that they're not going to win, whether it's a workout or a competition. This whole thing, you know, where everybody's a winner is really frustrating to me because I end up getting a hold of these, these teens and they've received ribbons for everything that they've ever done. And now all of a sudden they're getting beat and not getting beat by a small amount that's not even they're in the same league. And we need to make sure that there is that, that side where, you know what, you're going to lose. Things are going to be difficult, but that's how life is. Yeah, you're so exactly right. You're doing people such a disservice by not allowing them to, in, to experience discomfort. Like, mm-hmm. Life is, like, so far for me, life has been a decent amount of discomfort and <laughs> right and like, like, there's been a lot of shit in there and like but <laughs> that only makes the the good experiences even better and it gives you th- that why and it also gives you that ability to discard what was just discomfort and just difficulty and go towards what is difficult but also meaningful to me as an individual 
It gives me yeah. the opportunity to say that that is for me. Like maybe the CrossFit Games wasn't for me. I started off wanting, thinking, oh yeah, I'm, I was in the military at the time, very fit when I found CrossFit. And I was like, yeah, that's for me. And it took me about three years to figure out that is not for me because I kind of ignored the, the warning signs, the emotional side of it, the fact that I wasn't enjoying it, the fact that it didn't have any meaning for me. Um, and then I found like a kind of a more nuanced perspective for me. And like it mm-hmm. was failure that allowed me to do that because I experienced it time and time again. Yep. I, I think that that's a problem. Uh, this, this athletes give it getting over invested into their sport, like this, this preoccupation with results, um, especially if they fail, if they underperform these, these, these expectations, these pressures that they're placing on themselves, um, it creates the, the, the problem, the doubt, right? The negativity, the fear, the anxiety that they have, and, and that will cause them to underperform. So if an athlete only has, like you said, I just want to go to the CrossFit Games, I want to be a Games athlete. Well, what if that doesn't occur? Right. And, and, and let's face it, that, that is a very ambitious goal. And so in parallel, what we want to do is create a lot of value other than that particular goal. So that's another task of a coach is we want to be doing things in parallel. And, and, and I consider that really truly taking you know, advantage of the available time and maximizing that time. Um, you know, a, 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 here, I'll give you an example of that. So early on with Kalipa, Jason Kalipa won the CrossFit Games in 2008, and I started working with him in 2012. And he, he asked me to help him because he was getting dead last in every endurance event at the CrossFit Games. And he figured if he fixed those, he could get back on the podium. So we started running together and we would, I would do the workouts with him twice a week and um, we would be on the track and I would be, you know, in lane two um, and he'd be on my left shoulder as we were, you know, running the circles. And Jason was slow in those days and I wasn't intimidated at all by him. I didn't respect him as, as a runner um, because he had just had a lot of work to do and, and, and I have a lot of time on my feet. And so, you know, for me to, to keep these workouts entertaining, I would intentionally elbow him and bump him in the turns as we went around the track. And I had this move where I would, <laughs> I would, accidentally get too close to him as we're going around the turn. And I would take my elbow and I would jam it into his bicep and I'd kind of push off of him a little bit. And I would pretend I did it accidentally. And what I was really doing was I was not only teaching him the primary goal, which was this pacing, creating multiple gears, right? These multiple intensities with, you know, various paces working on longer time domains, working on these different metabolic pathways. But I was also teaching him tactics. And the thing was, is that he wasn't ready to understand tactics yet, but I was doing it behind the scenes. And after about four months, you know, Jason was decent in running and I would still, you know, play these games and bump him. And, you know, like if we were running on the open road, I would, you know, duck in front of him or tuck in behind him tactics. Well, 
after this three month period of time, I jam him with my elbow and he looks over to me and he says, you do that again. I'm going to flick you with my elbow and you're going to shoot out to lane nine. And there was like a, a meter high chain link fence. And he's on my hard enough that you fly over that fence and you know, I could do it. I look over at him and I stopped on the track and he stops like 10 meters further up the track. And he's all, "Die, offend you or something? And I'm all, no, I'm, 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 I'm so proud of you. And he's all, I threaten you and you're proud. And I'm like, I am. I go, the fact that you realize that I'm playing a game tells me that you're no longer a recreational runner, that you're a competitive runner, that you're so in control of your pacing, your breathing, your mechanics, right? The targeted intensities, the intervals, the overall workout volume, your strategy, that you're aware that I was being tactical with you. I was playing a game. And, you know, I never treated him the same ever, but you, I taught him multiple things in parallel and that's what we need to be doing. We need to really take advantage of that available time. And that didn't happen when I was an athlete, you know, my coaches made mistakes and they covered it up with volume and we can't do that anymore. The level, you know, everybody wants personalization. Everybody wants it. Why? because it creates more value in less time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all, it really approaches the human as a human. Um, like there's this, like, it's like behind every athlete, you're a human first. And it, it kind of, it relates to that humanity um, as well as the, um, as well as the athlete side of it. Was mm-hmm. that a conscious decision to say, okay, I'm going to play this game with Jason and then I'm going to, that will see, or was that just something that was kind of, I don't know, built into who you are or something that you're doing with everyone? No, it's always built. So I always, being candid, I, I really struggle with how other coaches out there that have never been an athlete can coach. I don't understand how they're able to do it without having that athlete perspective. I know what it's like to do the Hawaiian Ironman. I know it. I know th- I know how it is to train it. I know it, how it is to perform in it. I know the, the, the difficulties there. I know it because I did it over and over. I trained those volumes. And so I come from um, a source of, of experience. And one of the things that I realize is that as, as a former athlete and now a coach is that there are certain things that, that if you want to be competitive, you must learn. So Sarah Sigmund's daughter is, a, is an example. Many athletes, if, if you show them what to do first, they'll say, I already know how to do it. I already knew that. I knew that. The arrogance, the cockiness of it, right? And at the level of, of like a Sarah Sigmund's daughter, there needs to be an, a level of arrogance, this cockiness. I mean, it's important. You know, like I, I, some of the greatest athletes, like a Neil Maddox, like a Lindsey Valenzuela, Boy, when that when the gun went off, they transitioned to this person that I I admired and I loved, but boy was it misunderstood. Mm. And um, so what what I want is as I want um, athletes to understand when they they get a hold of these basic skills. So you have to teach the basic skills, like I mentioned with Kalipa. He has to understand how to feel his speeds, his paces. He has to create 13 different gears. 
He has to develop the capacity of doing a 10,000 meter track workout. He has to develop these core competencies. Behind the scenes, we're developing the competitive side because ultimately those basics are going to become instinctual. They will. And I know that as an athlete. So what we want to do is prepare for the next chapter now. And so what we teach is tactics. So for example, you know what, should you lead? I mean, if I was coaching you and we were doing a particular event, do and, and let's say part of that event involved running, running, should you lead the person that you're running with, or should you follow the person that you're running with? And if you're following, where should you be? Where should you sit? And what would be the advantages of being in front versus behind? And how would you manage that based upon the type of, of terrain that you are running on? Those things is what you want to teach. You want to teach those skills so that they become more tactical in their approach. And those things roll into their life after sports. Yeah. Like what I'm finding interesting is everyone that you're saying that you've worked with and everyone that I know that you've, um, that I'm aware of that you've worked with has this career and aim after success and like sure mm -hmm. after their competitive career and sure part of that is probably because they got to the top of the game and that facilitates yep. growth afterwards but a big but like, part of that a bigger part of that is the character they develop along the way like if, if you can help do that as a coach then you transmit to every area of their life and it's that character mm -hmm. that really trying to develop at the base as well as the tactical as well as the um the kind of physical adaptation too yep yeah so on sarah the thing was, is that she was always one that, that I, I, I already know that. And, and so what, what you want to do is you, you want to bring up subjects. You want to bring up these next layers and, and put them out there before you work on them as a skill. And one of the things that you do early on when it's not a focal point so that they don't auger into the earth with depression that they don't understand what they're talking about. You want to do it far in advance where it has no big impact. You, you don't want to wait for critical things um, the day of an event. That's the worst thing that you could do because if they don't do it perfectly, now they're in a, in a negative space. And a lot of people think that games athletes, for example, are, are ultra confident. They're some of the most insecure people that I've ever met. Um, and, and that's why we have to be really careful with the tone that we use or the, the, how aggressive a particular workout is, especially if it's getting close to competition time, because if they underperform or if they miss their last interval, right, they fail on, let's say they're doing 20 rounds of something and they get 19 perfectly and they bomb the last one, they're only going to remember that last one. And so I, I will do things way in advance. And with Sarah, I, I was talking in particular about um, transitions and, and how to get out of the water and put your shoes on. And she says, I have very sensitive feet and I have to wear socks. I'm like, okay, I want to go head to head against you. I, I don't like wearing socks um, when I run. I like when my feet sweat and the, the sweat like bonds the shoe to my foot and creates this monolithic piece. And I like that. Um, and I don't worry about blisters or my toenails falling off. I mean, that's just part of the, 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 the sport. And so I, I told her how to put on socks and I, I prepped her and I gave her all the tips. 
And so what we did is we were at Rich Froning's dad's house and we, we got out of his pond, ran up the hill and side by side, and I get on my shoes and I run down the road. I was 200 meters ahead of Sarah when she came out of the barn and running down the road. And I circle back to her. And the first thing she said to me was, I'm not going to wear socks. So she learned by example that her way was not the way. You showed her, I'm telling her. Right. And if I told her that in advance, she would have already given me the, I already know that. And she didn't understand the magnitude of it. And part of it is, is that our job, like you said, is teaching this why, but not being so upfront about it. Because part of it is, is when we're teaching, we're teaching because they don't know. And that can be perceived by an elite athlete is creating an insecurity because they didn't know, right? And that is a concern. So another example. So I, I, I worked with Julie Fouché back in 2015, and she was actually my pick to win the CrossFit Games in 2015 until she pulled her Achilles. And um, she, she in the, the very first workout that, that I asked her to do was a 400 for time, and she got a panic attack in the middle of it. Um, and the reason why she got a panic attack was because she didn't look at workouts and come up with a game plan. She just would do them. And part is, is that there is, when you strategize about a workout, there is always what we call a sticking point. And that sticking point is where a workout gets real. Um, it's the point when you cross over into a non-sustainable pace and it's your, your brain is telling you, if you don't slow down, we're going to be severely compromised. But the key is, is knowing when you cross over into that non-sustainable pace, that you're close enough to the finish line where you're confident you could bring it home and the body blows up just as you cross the line. Every single workout or event that we do has that moment where we're crossing into that non-sustainable pace. And the key is timing it so that when you do cross over, you have enough energy to make it to the finish. Well, you have to predict where that is going to be. So the brain's not surprised. So it's what's called a hazard score. It's your perceived amount of pain versus your actual pain. And when and where will that occur? So if you think about running a lap around the track as fast as you possibly can, where is that sticking point, that uh-oh moment, that negative thought that, man, this is way worse than, than I imagined it to be. Where would it occur in that lap, that 400 meter lap around the track? And for most, it's somewhere in that 250 meters range that it's like, holy heck, this is really bad. And also imagine how bad it is going to hurt. Well, when Julie did it, she just ran it because it was just a lap around the track and her mismatch between her perceived amount of pain before it, which was nothing because it was just a lap versus actual, it manifested into a panic attack. Little did I know that happened to her. That when in shorter, high intensity workouts, this is her weakness. And, you know, a lot of great athletes, they cover up their weaknesses. You just don't know. And here's a multi-podium athlete that's getting panic attacks. And so how do you write a workout without that addresses that without pointing it out? That's what a coach should be doing. 
So what I started realizing was, is that I need to write workouts that force her to be aware of where that sticking point occurs. So take, for example, if you were doing four laps around the track, 1600 meters, and you're doing as fast as you could, where would the sticking point occur? Which lap? And it would be your third lap would be the biggest hurdle. And if you got through the third, you could probably bring it home for that last lap. So what I would do is write workouts that forced her to recognize that that sticking lap, that third lap would be the biggest challenge. So I'd write workouts such as like, and this is just an example, it'd be four different, let's say I was on the rower and it's four 500 meter intervals is your workout. And you're going to do a 500 at a moderate pace rest. And then round two is 500 moderate pace. And then round four is a 500 at moderate pace. So they're all the same. But round three, where I wanted to focus is you're going to do five by 100 meter sprints with a very small amount of rest. So she looks at it and she's like, wow, the five 100s, that is fast. And there's no rest. That's going to hurt. So she's going to already be aware of the point where she normally isn't even aware. But remember, why does she have a panic attack in that lap around the track? Well, the reason why is not because of the sticking point, the awareness. It's because she wasn't able to manage from when that occurred to the finish line, because the brain, it's always evaluating your level of fatigue with your remaining volume. And if the brain doubts your, your condition and uh, comparison to the remaining volume, you're going to be forced to slow down. You never want the brain to be surprised. So Julie's weakness was that it was the, the bringing it home portion is what created the panic attack. And so what I wanted her to realize was, and the reason why the fourth interval is the same as the first and the second is because I want her to be confident that she can do it. But imagine the level of fatigue coming into that fourth interval because she had just done five by 100 meter sprints with short rest. But that's where she needed to build her confidence is that, you know what? I can be smoked at my sticking point and go above that maximum sustainable pace and still bring it home. And that's what a great coach should do is it shouldn't point out these weaknesses. What it should do is indirectly point them out and let the athlete problem solve. That way, the athlete gets the win. And that's how you build their confidence. And you're you're sticking within their ownership of their situation. It's like, okay, I've got the answers within myself, which builds that conf uh, confidence in that. I love that. I really love that. Whilst you're talking, and it's it's really interesting, in, the, in your first example, it was kind of somewhere in the back of my mind. In the second example, it became very obvious. The thing that kicked me out, the, well, not kicked me out of the military, the, the reason I opted to leave the military is because I was getting heart palpitations. And at the what they existed from when I was a kid to when I, well, I still occasionally get them. What I didn't realize is they're entirely anxiety induced. They're entirely <laughs> created. Um, and the more the fear um, existed, obviously the more anxiety was created, the worse the, um, the worse the, the physical effect was. Um, and it's only been recently that I've kind of, okay, I'm going to train this. I'm going to put myself in those situations and kind of encounter those and kind of yeah, expose myself to that in a voluntary, in a voluntary way um, to kind of 
to treat that and to kind of get more awareness and to find safety within that almost like okay that okay uh, that that discomfort is um something to hold not hold on to something to know is safe but also the thing that you said right at the end there is something that i've been playing around with again and just introduced it very very recently the idea of like okay i'm going to finish off in a safe manner in the same mm-hmm. way a dentist if they know what they're doing even if you go through a horrible procedure at the end they'll kind of just poke around in your mouth for a bit and not really hurt you so you remember it as like a oh that wasn't that bad because you, your brain's only going to remember the last few minutes of it yep i mean that's the goal right we want to build these these behaviors so that they learn and they believe that they came up with the the the, the positive strategy on their own and that's the skill is not taking credit for fixing a particular weakness. And what we want to do is we want to drive home these, these, um, these new behaviors uh, so that they don't, the, 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 essentially these behaviors, they become almost like instinctual, like I said, they become automatic to them. Um, it's kind of like, like you said about the dentist. You know what? It's nighttime. I brush my teeth when I go to bed and it's, it's automatic. And that is, is it's important as a coach, when we find these, these weaknesses that are, are holding them back and it's not just sport. Remember if she's doing this in sport, she's doing it in other things. She is not properly planning for the uh uh-oh moment in that journey. And there is always like, I mean, it's, there's always uh-oh moments. And what we need to do is we need to do a better job at the assessment. And that's where a lot of, 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 of athletes, they don't understand that. Like, how do you pace a workout that you've never done before? And that is something that, that needs to be addressed. And so it becomes habit instinctual that you know how to do it. Um, and that's the same thing with a lot of challenges that life drops in your lap. Mm. The, th- the phrase that keeps on going through my mind here is um, competence equals confidence. Like mm-hmm. The more exposed to it, the less uh, distressing the stimulus becomes. If you enjoy training your mind through podcasts like this, you're also going to enjoy our free newsletter. It's called Quad Shot of Brain Gains. Every week, I'll be sharing four things you can start doing this week to train your mind. I'll always share something you can try in the gym, something you can try in wildlife, and a few other perspective shifters to boot. It's also where you'll get priority access to any deals we have or new products like our brand new Mindset Upgrade course. Hint, hint. You can sign up for free at MindsetRx.com. That's MindsetRxd.com. Now, let's get back on with the show. That's right. Yeah, so I, I, I'm a huge fan of, of, of finding opportunity. Um, you know, I always tell people that the the worst workouts are ones that we don't learn anything. It was a waste of time. And that's really what we're trying to do is, you know, one of the things that I just did is, is I just did a, uh, so I write workouts for a a bunch of different people. And one of them, um, mayhem athlete, I, I, I write their endurance workouts in the mayhem athlete program. And I recently just finished a, uh, 20 minute biker progression. 
Um, and we had over 800 people sign up to do this. And um, during that, that 20 minutes, one of the things that, that I realized right away when I started looking at the athlete's results um, at these various workouts, because one of the things that I do is in these, these very unique progressions is I, I pull the results that are stored in a outside database. So I'm not in control of them. And I take those results and I compile them and I create athlete profiles for the people that do these workouts. And they ultimately get personalized paces on the biker just for doing the program. And it's a lot of work on my part. Um, but part is, is that I want to make sure I best understand the typical athlete that is in this sport. So for example, like we had a, we had a, uh, a mile for time program in mayhem athlete. It was the original 12 workouts that I did for rich back in 2014. And to me, what was interesting, we had over 2000 people do that program. What was interesting was what is the average mile time in the mayhem athlete program? Like, what is it? How fast is average? And that to me was interesting. So it was an, it was an eight, 10 mile. An eight, 10 mile, and remember, about 75% of their members are men. An eight, 10 mile, that shows you where a recreational CrossFitter is, right? An eight, 10 mile. It's, it's a mediocre time. That to me was very educational. In this 20-minute biker progression, one of the things that I did was is I believed that CrossFitters, because they don't do long time domains, they're not able to stay engaged in a 20-minute maximum effort biker test. And so on week nine, I programmed in, instead of a 20-minute test, I programmed, I'm sorry, in week eight, I programmed a eight-minute maximum effort followed up by a 10-minute maximum effort. I mean, eight-minute max effort, 10 minutes of rest, and then another eight-minute max effort. A 20-minute test and the two eight-minute efforts are known tests in the cycling world. And I can reduce the wattage in the two eight-minute tests by 5%, and it should equal your performance in the 20-minute test. And what I'm looking for is average wattage. So what was your average wattage over 20 minutes? And what was your average wattage between the two eight-minute tests? Well, if I, if I slow down your speed 5% or your wattage in the two eight-minute tests, it should match up with the 20. You know what was overwhelming was the difference, the contrast between the average wattage in the eight-minute test versus the 20-minute test. Dramatically, like 15%, 20% faster in the eight-minute average than the 20. Now, why? It's because the CrossFitter, 20 minutes is a, a monumental amount of time to keep the head in the game because they don't do that type of training. And that was interesting to me, that they're challenged with that type of volume. Mm. And what's interesting is that if I take that same concept, 20 minutes, when I meet up with firehouses, like I work with the fire department in New York, I tell them all the time, you're not ready for intensity until you can put 20 minutes on your feet moving. And I'm talking about a slow jog, 20 minutes. After you can do that, I'm going to start stacking intensity. I need to make sure that you can do the 20 minutes so that we have a sound structure. Your foundation can take on the pounding of the high intensity. 
that is a baseline for firefighters. They're not allowed to go to the next level until they can do 20 minutes. And here we have CrossFitters and there was, you know, 835 people with those 20 minute tests, you know, the vast majority, 95 plus couldn't hang on for 20 minutes. Mm. That to me was interesting. And it tells me a lot about the types of athletes in the sport and how to program for them. I think it also tells you a lot about culture now and what we train our minds to do because it's yes in in crossfit it's like that eight to ten minute time domain is something that we're familiar with time time again but also we're distracted we very rarely sit with one thing time and time and time like for for uh, for an hour at a time like i know i'm talking from my own experience here like it's so easy to get distracted it's so easy to pick up your phone it's so easy to open a new browser tab it's so easy to um, stop talking to the person that you know you should be doing start thinking about something else and we we train our our mind to kind of flick across all these different events from time um yeah throughout the day so it's not exactly surprising that we get to a longer than 10 minute time domain and we're like i'm going to check out yeah i mean I, you must have looked at that like part of it is you know, like they announced that marathon row. And I, I was bummed for our community in that the way our best of our best responded to a marathon row, it's not physically difficult. It's just that you have to sit there for a long amount of time. If anything, you would describe it as boring. Like, wow, that is such a boring event. Like that's what she came up with is we're going to sit here for three hours. Like uh, that, I would agree. And I, 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 I am always fascinated by the mindset of a CrossFit athlete and, and, and why is that? And, and one of the the issues that I have is negative thought. It propagates under fatigue. And if you don't do enough volume, then you're never really challenging yourself to manage negative thought. You know, like the Ironman, the Ironman, there's plenty of moments where negative thought can propagate. And, and now you're going down this path. And it's very hard to pull yourself back out of negative thought. You almost accept certain negative pieces as you're progressing through an event. And, and, and that's where I saw this marathon of, of like, I really wish, I really, really wish that, that there was athletes in there that just like, wow, this is awesome. Yeah. Right. But there weren't. Mm. Everyone was and, like, I'm going to get through it. I'm just going to like tick this box and move on and it's going to suck. And it's like, as opposed to this is an opportunity. This is, this is cool. This is a good thing to happen. Like it's another test of my mentality. Right. Yep. Yeah. And it told me something and, and, and I've, I've done a lot of digging on that. And, and I have learned that there's these two types of, of, of athletes out there. And, and one of the reasons why people love CrossFit high, the high intensity, short time domain workouts is because they don't have to think. When it's so high intensity, you can't think, you can't problem solve. And there's the other side, like myself, I like doing long workouts at a lower intensity because it's very cathartic for me. Like I could problem solve. Matter of fact, most of my ideas that I come up with, the innovative ones occur during a long, easy run. And I'm able to problem and think. And that's why I like it. But there is a huge group of people in CrossFit that that's why they don't like longer time domains because they have to deal with their thoughts. They have to problem solve and they're training to escape, which is fascinating to me because that I, I don't understand it. I try, but I don't No, Like it's, it's the simple thing to do, especially if you're kind of 
rooted down that sympathetic system kind of dominance like it's like okay that's where i naturally go or that's where i've trained myself to go to kind of switch off and to chase that intensity but i'm exactly the same as you man like if i want to figure something out i get out and i rock carry or i nasal breathe jog or like or something like that just long slow um and it's yeah thinking about some of the harder physical tests i've done like a 30 mile load carry stuff like that it's not physically yes it's difficult because you've got some weight on your back and it's uncomfortable when you're walking across uneven ground and like in this two-week exercise and the culmination of and like, all that kind of stuff but it's mostly boring <laughs> and yeah. that's and that's like the the skill to tolerate that discomfort of you know what i'm gonna choose i'm gonna be aware of my thoughts i'm gonna be aware of my emotional state is a, an important skill to develop for all kinds of reasons exactly that's where i when i was doing the sport of triathlon, I was able to make myself do things. Like I'm just going to make myself do it. And, and like you said, it's incredibly boring. It takes a tremendous amount of time. You've got to stay focused on it, but it's just a grind. If you keep moving, you will finish. Just don't stop. And uh, that's one of the things that I, I, I learned like <laughs> one of the times I did Ironman in Kona, I, I remember I was, I was, up and about the following day. And I said to myself, I'm like, wow, I'm really not sore at all. And I think I could do this seven days in a row, which is, I mean, clearly I'm brain damaged to think that, Like, I, but the fact that I could make my body do it is, is saying something that you've gotten to the point where you can force your body to do those things. And, and that to me was always interesting is this play between your muscles, your body and the brain right? That, that here, when we train, the brain is telling the muscles, okay, you got to do this. You're doing this. And now we get to the competition and the muscles are prepared. They've done all the work and the brain is sitting there going, "Uh, uh-uh. like shut it down. Like it, it switches. And to me, the relationship between the body and the brain and those dynamics um, was always fascinating. If you can get an athlete to the point where I don't care what it is. I can make myself do anything. That's a soldier. Mm. I'll do it. And that's a rare thing. Yeah, absolutely is. And I think I think it comes back down to that competence thing. The more times you put yourself inside that environment and prove yourself, prove to yourself that you know what, I'm I'm safe or I, I can do this or I can come out of this on on top or like, yeah, I'm not gonna die is yep. I think I think like yeah, the, the better, basically. Do you think, though, that like, like, so take, for example, me, like doing a nine hour event at, you know, maximal intensity, like truly racing nine hours. I, I think back on, on that, it gives me perspective. And so now, if I have to do a 45 minute track workout, the perspective of a 45 minute track workout, even though it's difficult, it pales in comparison to a nine hour maximal effort race. And so it's the perspective of, of like, well, I already did that and I know that I survived and I'm, I'm good. This is going to be easy. And so there's not that, that, that anxiety anymore because my experience is way beyond that point. And that's exactly. what I wonder about CrossFitters. Yeah. I'm curious on your thought on that. Right? It's, the, it's the framing effect, right? It's like, if I have such and such experience and that fills up my boundary of like, this is where I've been before, 
that is all you know whereas if your boundary expands the kind of the the model is the um comfort zone i suppose the the commonly phrased um aspect of that it's like if your boundary is is expanded to incorporate new things and then something else fits very neatly within that boundary it becomes less of a confrontation with your fear right so knowing that fear has a huge play in 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 performance right anxiety uh, especially on the competition floor. I mean, and we see that all the time, you know, like I work with Jason Hopper and, and an incredible talent, incredible. But when he showed up at the CrossFit games, even though he played, you know, D one football for Clemson, like he's been on the big stage, but when he took the big stage, that adrenaline rush smoked him. He was fried before he took the field. And, and so part of what I think about is, is you know those first time jitters you know they're going to happen no matter what you, you can't prepare for that until you're there and eventually they go away but it's the key is the training and getting rid of the anxiety and the fear of the events the movements the time domains right the fatigue the, the accumulated fatigue over you know those multiple events and I don't see, I don't know about you, but I just don't see that that happening where the edges of their experience are pushed so wide that no matter what gets programmed at the CrossFit Games, I could wrap my head around it. Yeah, that's exactly why I want to want to do something like selection for CrossFitters, um, the special forces selection. Like I think that it would be a the physical aspect of it, the amount the injury rate would be horrendous, um, because it, it, yeah. it is environments but there's something about the confidence and the kind of oh well i've done something far harder than this like my frame of reference is so much greater than this that because of that standing in front of people yes it's daunting but it's it's within my bound of comfort is it's within this like domain that i'm know that i'm safe in and it's somewhat within the known, I think is is probably the best way to put it. It's like this no longer an event that's so far in the unknown that I get that physical response, I get that mental response. Um and yeah, I'm 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 in the environment that I know I'm, I'm I, I know I can understand and conceptualize. Mm-hmm. That's where I think that CrossFit, there's still room. I mean, there's there's plenty of room. I mean, there's lots of concepts that I would love to implement in the sport. It's just not ready yet. And the obvious one to me is time domains that in your off season, when you want to maybe work on your strength and, you know, and this is like from the time of after the games until let's say December one, you should be building your capacity. You should be working long time domains. You should be able to, you know, do a marathon row. Uh, you should be able to run one hour. And I still don't see that today. And that's why a lot of people will come and they go, is there any room in this, in this sport, like in growth? And it's like, boy, we are in the infancy of this sport, you know, that, that there are still tremendous opportunity to push at the edges, especially if you want to be a competitor, um, because the volume still is very, very low um, in terms of workout volume. They're doing multiple workouts in a day, but they're all in that same shorter time domain. And I, 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 there's still that, that, that opportunity to develop the aerobic side and the confidence to manage that volume. 
Yeah. And that comes back to what you're talking about right at the beginning of this. It takes a risk to do that, to step outside of what everyone else is doing and to do something a little bit more individual, but something yeah. that in the trusted direction of better. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that's like, I always, you get challenged by and, and part as a coach, it's our job to to make our words resonate with the athlete. And, you know, so talking about military, so I do, I do a bunch of work with the Marines here. And um, I was at a Marine base, 29 Palms um, out near the Mojave desert. And, and I was there training and we, they have a, a track with a, a, a marked football field, a turf field. And we were doing some pacing drills and, one of the things that I wanted to talk to them about was stride frequency, the number of steps that they're taking when they, they ruck. And one of the things that the Marines have told me is that, you know, when they ruck, they're in formation and taller athletes have to manage their cadence with shorter athletes, which is incredible to me that that is still happening. So then I, I talked to them about how do they teach you how to go faster with a heavy ruck? And they, they all said longer stride length. Every one of us were taught that if you want to ruck faster, you got to take a longer stride. And so they demo for me and it's a significant overstride. Well, when they're overstriding like that, their heel is reaching out. Now they have army boots on when they're hiking. And so they're laced up and they can't, you know, control or relax that dorsiflexion of the foot as it makes contact. And so when the heel hits, the toes want to hit the ground and they get a tearing in the shin splints. And so the number one injury is shin splints. So we're sitting on the track. And, and one of the things that we did was, is that we looked at ruck weights and they go up to, you know, let's say 60 pounds. And I told them, I said, do you realize the fastest rucker in our sport is Tia Claire Toomey? And, and, and I'm talking about heavy loads. So when it's a lighter load, they're not changing like 20 pounds for a CrossFitter to run. It's nothing. They don't even feel it, but you put 60 pounds on them. They cannot run. They have to shuffle. So what I'm talking about is Tia with 50 pounds on her back. And why is she that fast? Because she could take 185 steps in a minute. The average CrossFitter is taking somewhere around 170. So imagine she's taking 15 steps more every minute. She's getting her speed, not by length, but by stride frequency. And so when I'm sitting and telling them, I said, realize that on this turf, across the length of this football field, there is a hundred of these hash marks. Each hash mark is one yard apart. So if we go from goal line to goal line, you'll hit a hundred hash marks. You realize that if you do that and you, you put your 60 pound ruck on and you go and you touch every hash mark and shuffle all the way down the field. If you could do that in 30 seconds, that's 200 steps in a minute. That's how fast it is. So T is at 185 and she's the best of the best. I go, I want you guys to all try this. And what they did is they shuffle with the ball of their foot hitting the paint. So they shuffle along and hit the paint. The average time, all of them were under 25 seconds. If they were getting to 20 seconds, and Dan Bailey did this at 18.2 seconds. That's over 300 steps a minute. Um, Tia is at 185. That had never been taught to them before. And that was eye-opening for them. That when you give them an explanation, they're in their mind going, 
wow, I don't even need to try it. I don't need to know anything about physiology, but logically that makes sense to me. That's way more valuable than just do longer stride. Yeah. And that's also a very important part is knowing right away, like, wait, longer stride to me, that doesn't make any sense. So now you're the coach. You just bashed an idea. What's your solution? And that better, better make logical sense. You, like to use or to to expand on that a little bit, there's something I know it's used in the um, the UK Marines, the Royal Marines, but mm-hmm. I've never heard about it in any other element um, of the British forces. But there's this idea called the commando shuffle, and it's exactly what you just mentioned. And you kind of when I was on exercises, you see people, and especially in training as well, you see people just get it, and mm-hmm. you you well, we'd call it yomping. You'd call it rocking with like anywhere from 25 pounds to 135 pounds. And yeah. the people who did well were the people who shortened that stride length, took more of them. And it was like the kind of the the wheel with many, many spokes. And they were the people who not only ran quicker, but didn't get shin splints. So it's really nice to like see that, ah, logically that makes sense. And evidentially it makes sense too. Yep. That's where it's like you 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 need to do some homework as a coach. You you, you like so I I mentioned the fire department in New York. New York. I, I I didn't bother reaching out to them. I, I I'd been playing in the space for four years, understanding the 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 profession of firefighting, and what are the solutions, and and you need to do some homework. You can't just jump in and and call yourself an expert in an area that you believe that you, your expertise carries over into another field. I, I, I struggle with that. It's like, what makes you think that you're an expert in firefighting just because you, you're good at, at training fun, functional fitness athletes. That, that to me, it never made any sense. And, and I didn't know enough. And that's where I spent a lot of time understanding, like, where is the value in, in what I know and how can you provide value in, in that particular profession? Just the same way I was mentioning about the Marines. Yeah. What's, what's interesting that like the coaches that do make that leap from one area to another, they seem to have a very pronounced initial spike in the Dunning-Kruger curve of like, Oh, my confidence is way high, but my experience is next to zero. But the coaches that I see who do well, they have that humility, but it's also this like self-doubt of like, oh, like I, I realized the gravitas of this and the significance of this, especially applying it to first responders and the like. Um, mm-hmm. My confidence on that first spike is kind of squashed and that I kind of, I go straight back down. Like sure, my confidence arises eventually. Um, but like that ability to squash your own Dunning-Kruger curve is I think an important de- uh, skill for a coach to develop. Well, I mean, think about how much time that you have put in, in, in your knowledge base. And it's an incredible amount of time. And like, people always like, are you surprised at like overnight success? And it's like, what are you talking about? Like the amount of effort that I have put in and still put in it's, it's monumental. And, and I, I, I always struggle with the fact that, that, people will jump onto a particular scene and you look at their experience and it's like, how is it possible that 
they can back up this bravado. And, and I, I, that to me, I, I've never been able to do. And maybe because I was a small little kid and that insecurity still exists. Mm. Yeah, my life would be much easier if I did have that, that bravado straight away. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe that's why, but maybe that's why you resonate is that, mm. that you're trying to convince yourself that what you're saying is actually correct. Like you're having an argument with yourself. Okay. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Well, you want your own bullshit filter on, don't you? You want. To- <laughs> like, oh no, I caught that. I I I saw that, and I I I'm lying to myself. And like we all do that the whole time. It's just whether you catch it or not. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's why I, when I talk about physiology, like it, at, so, this aerobic capacity seminar that that I I I provide out in the CrossFit community. One of the things that that I explain early on is the the human body is logical, and if you can't follow the logic in your head of a a methodology that I'm proposing, or if someone else is proposing it, if you can't follow it in your head, then it's just too complicated, and I then the BS meter kicks in for me. Why do you have to throw in a bunch of scientific jargon to explain something simplistic? Because the human body. If you put a stimulus on it, you get it good nutrition, you get good recovery, you create an adaptation. And that's how simple it is. If you read about a particular subject, your body is going to learn that subject. There's your adaptation. And that's how beautiful the body is. And so you can follow the logic. And if you can't, then that coach, I'm questioning whether or not they've got it because they're providing a bunch of big words to confuse um, and, and to intimidate. And I, I try not ever to do that. Um, the problem, and I'm, 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 I'm curious if you do it. The, the, the problem is, is that we get comfortable in our own storyline. And we think that because we've said something a hundred times that everybody else understands it equally. And one of the things that, that I learned a couple of years ago was, Many CrossFitters, they've never been to a running track before, and they don't even know what direction to run in. My assumption was that was a given. Everybody knows where to start an interval on a track and what direction to run in. And that's just not true. And part is, is, is be careful in, in saying things to yourself over and over again, because others may not understand that basics. You know, like we talk about dumbing things down. It's like, be careful on 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 your creation of acronyms and your assumption that other people understand those acronyms. Yeah, well, I suppose it's, the challenge is the, to advance your thinking. You've got to create mental shortcuts and you've got to create assumptions because that allows you to bypass the kind of the initial the kind of the basics every time you think about it. It simplifies an element and then you can grow and expand upon it and dive into new elements from that. Um, but that is taking taking on board the idea that actually everyone knows what I'm talking about, like you said, which is um a challenge to to you as a coach. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Yeah. There's um I don't know whether you've ever read um any Feynman, Richard Feynman, the physicist. Um no. he's got this this book, Six Easy Pieces. And this is a guy that worked on the Manhattan Project. Um he's uh he, like he's an incredible physicist, so advanced in, in his thinking. But he wrote a book, Six Easy Pieces, and it was 
anyone can get in there and understand it from the baseline. And it takes you from simple understandings all the way through to quantum mechanics. And hmm. it's like, sure, at the end, it gets a bit straggly, but you understand that the basics that is, is, is built on. And that, I suppose, is the, the sign of a good coach, a good teacher, someone that can explain without that unnecessary complexity. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're right. Like, what we're really doing is creating this this environment, right? And 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 yeah, there's all different types of 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 techniques that are provided within that environment, um, and and the the ability to understand is um, part of that. You know, one of the things that you're always doing when you meet somebody new is you're trying to calibrate their knowledge base with your knowledge base. And the coach is the one that needs to adjust, not the individual. Um, and so I used to start way too um, complex. And then as I realized it's not registering, I, I dumb it down and I work the other way now. Um, what I do is I try and start at the very basics, um, but I do it in a unique way where it comes through as more like a story. So like we were talking about the track and where to line up mm. in my seminar, I talk about the first time I did a track workout with Jason Kalipa and Kalipa didn't know. Yeah. Um, he came to the track and he lined up to do this workout on the turn. And I, I now leverage that story and say to, you know, in the seminar, I, in my interaction with Jason, I tell Jason, well, why are you lining up on the turn? You know, that that's not where we line up, that there's four corners on every track and each corner is separated by a hundred meters. And it gives me a chance to talk about the basics in a particular topic, such as doing track intervals, but doing it in a, a story or a, you know, like when I went to business school, we called them case studies and we would, you know, I share them through case studies and it is a more protected way to talk about something that an adult won't likely bring up because of their insecurities. They don't want to sound dumb. Like what direction do we run in? Because to them, they know that probably everybody in the room understands that and they're the only ones, but what they don't realize is probably half don't understand that. And so what I do is I try and build it into um, these case studies, these stories that I will tell and create that that foundation of knowledge that we build from. Um, but I start the other way and then move up um, because I think that that what I've I've learned along the way is that adults that are in their late thirties, early forties, maybe even through their forties, there's incredible insecurities that they have, and those insecurities are identical to when they were, you know, 16, 17 years old. Um, life has, has beaten them down um, and they don't realize it. You know, these, these insecurities have manifested themselves in the business world that they now have segmented into their physical world. And their physical world is now carrying all those insecurities. And mainly because if you're in your late 30s, or 40s, for most people, life has gotten in the way of their fitness and they've lost their fitness and they're now insecure 
um, because they know they've lost it. Plus those, those insecurities that have been pushed on them throughout their life are now buried in the physical side. And what we want to do is we want to start out by talking the basics and having these things be almost obvious to where they answer those questions and know them because every single answer that they get right builds that confidence and pushes that insecurity out of them. And yeah, that's one of the main things that I've, I've, I've really, I've, I've gotten to respect is adults have these insecurities and it is in their physical side um, because life has beaten them down and they are now behaving like a teenager, those insecurities. Well, and they're, they're buried in their physical world and they're also baked into their identity and that identity mm-hmm. exists to reduce complexity. So it's like, yeah. if, if this is my identity, then it's easy to overlay this lens on my interaction with the world. Exactly. And that then becomes a simplicity creation device. Um, and then to expose that again is very unnerving unless they've voluntarily put themselves in the scenario to say, this is something I want to work on. I know I want to work on my mentality around this. And that takes courage and that takes um a fortunate sequence of events as well to open that up to them as a possibility. Yep. Well, and, and imagine you take someone, you take someone that, that has zero confidence in their physical abilities, yet they're in their middle ages and you, you fix the physical side to where now they're confident in what they're capable of doing. You know, imagine like, it's one of the things that's really kind of fun for me is, is teaching, like doing like a running, like a, a, a class that, that we go out and we run twice a week and we'll go to the track and I'll teach middle-aged people how to do track intervals that you can look at a track workout and show up on a track and know your paces, know your splits, know your target times and know how to hit them. Imagine the confidence that you're 45 year old woman and you show up at a track, even though your speed isn't fast, you could do a full blown workout. That is a boost. And imagine now you have that and it carries over into your business world. Now you're ready to dominate the insecurity that people have on their physical side. It carries over into the workplace, that insecurity they carry. They may not think that they do, but it's there. And so I always, I always think about that when, when I'm sitting down with somebody and it's like, wow, these people don't even know their journey. And if I could keep them involved without getting distracted by that other shiny object, they're going to be someone in the business world to really contend with. And they're a better husband or wife or father or mother, and they're a better friend. And yeah, they're a better athlete and they're better in their career. And like, there's this a developmental psychologist called Piaget. And he kind of said that um, we learn from the micro movement to the macro kind of almost imperceptible level of what makes a good human. Um, yeah. And we're all aiming at this ultimate thing of like, of does this make me does this kind of move up okay so like um a snap if my my ability to develop a snatch improves my self-reputation with my ability as a crossfitter which improves my self-reputation as and my self-image as uh as an athlete which again in turn 
like improves my self-image as a person and we kind of these small interactions that coaches have with athletes and athletes have with themselves every day have these ramifications far beyond the the smallest movements that we're focused on and i think once we realize that especially as coaches like you realize that, that the privilege there is to to talk to someone and to guide them in this process and realize the effect that that can have on their life and everyone they interact with it becomes this far bigger responsibility and it becomes a a new level of awareness for you that's interesting well so hmm, i'll confide in you so uh, for me um i'm a slow twitch dominant athlete and i've had biopsies in my arm my legs and you know what i'm never going to be strong because of that genetically but I've been in the sport for since 2008, and uh, you know that's when I first picked up a barbell. I don't understand how I couldn't teach a snatch, I couldn't teach a clean, I I, I couldn't teach an overhead squat. I mean, I, I I mean I could. I'm a level two trainer, but I wouldn't jump into that sandbox because my level of confidence isn't there. My level of confidence is so weak is that when I now show up at a gym somewhere else in the world, I don't want to work on a snatch in front of others because I lack the confidence of doing it how other people perceive that I should do it. And so much so that I don't even do many lifts ever. Anything complicated like a snatch or an overhead squat, I'm not going to do it because I got shoulder and impingement issues and I don't want to hear all the stuff. That is incredible that I've been doing it for this long. And now because of the way the the social side has been through traveling, I've now so insecure, I'm not going to ever do it, which is incredible that even knowing that I'm aware of what happens and I see it in others, I'm doing the same thing myself. Well, we have a reputation to protect an image that we've created that we think that we have to remember keep consistent amongst ourselves and amongst other people and if they can't see that in a vulnerability then it doesn't exist to ourselves in it's, it's kind of like a a lie of omission and like i do this too like especially like having the background that i do and like and previously doing a lot of endurance sport like i feel like oh i should be the endurance guy i should be able to go yeah. back and do that but like I'm not going to expose myself to it sometimes. Um, apart from when I'm really feeling like safe, I think is probably yeah. the environment there. Um, it's 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 a challenge, right? We've got to pick away at our identity and and think: is that really true? Is that is that true, or is that just a story I've told myself to believe through repetition? Yeah, yeah. It's a bummer that that I feel that way, and and I always think, oh man, I'm just you know what? Who cares? Who cares? Well, as soon as you start putting weight on that bar, it's like, nah, I do care. <laughs> I yeah, do yeah. care. And then the yeah. self-talk becomes something like, and yeah, I, and I, I completely resonate with this as well because I've been, been in situations where like, oh, I'm a coach. I should be able to do this. Or like people have listened to my podcast and I'm training with them. And that, that's, I think it's like, and then I hold this um, image in my mind of what people think I should be able to do. And then the self-talk becomes like, oh, they're, effectively they're judging me or like i should stop this or like i i now have this um yeah this this drop in confidence this like i'm gonna get out there and avoid the problem when in fact what another part of me wants to do is 
overcome that weakness and that challenge. Um, yep. And it's a fight between those two parts of me. Yeah, that was it was nice. You know, in the beginning where I could be in a gym and 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 do whatever and, and blend in. And, you know, that, that was it was a nice time and it made me a better athlete and more well-rounded. Um, yeah, I don't know. Someday, someday maybe I'll overcome it, but maybe I'll just do it at my house instead. Yeah. Yeah. That's you know. like, it's all about safety. Athletes and humans require an element of safety initially to, yeah. like, oh, okay, like socially. And that's the big one, isn't it? It's social. Yeah. Right. It's, it's Are they the going to talk about me? Tribe. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Like, am I going to be an outcast? Uh, and that's, yep. that's a huge one. Yeah. That's why, like, when I was doing, so I just did um, six seminars for, for North Metro Fire in, in Denver, Colorado with Matt Chan. And I did two weeks ago. And one of the things that I walked away from was, Wow, there are are areas that even though I've spent all of this time, there are areas that I don't have an expertise in that they're in desperate need of. And you know, we we have the cardio side, we have the strength side, you know, those functional movements of their job, but we also have the nutrition requirement. And then the 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 fourth area that I realize that is way outside of my knowledge scope. Um, so I'm shifting from, you know, lifting a snatch to, to knowledge in, in a particular field. And that is the mindset piece. And, uh, and you, I'm sure know that coming from, from military, but, but police and fire, I completely underestimated the value of mindset within them. Um, and, and that requirement, and it's on equal level of nutrition that they need to have that understanding um, as well as, as, um, their, their cardio and, and strength and conditioning work. Um, and yeah, that to me was, was fascinating is that I, I, it caught me off guard that I'm not prepared for, for that side. And the thing is, is like, I'm never going to be prepared that like, for example, the work that you have put in, I'm never going to be at your level. Um, one, because I'm already, I got too much on my plate in my level and where I'm focusing on. But it just goes to show that that you shouldn't be an expert in everything. You shouldn't. It's like my expertise is, is in this certain space. And you know what? I'm still decent in cardio because of my genetics. That does not mean that I'm going to be an expert in weightlifting or in mindset for firefighters. Yeah. There's, I can't remember who said that quote, but a lot of people are um, more sure of everything than I am of anything. <laughs> and like we like a lot of people are very very confident but i don't think you should be yeah like you said an expert in everything you can't be there isn't the time there isn't the energy available and there isn't your own proclivity to learning either like you're going to yeah. be interested in what you're in and i'm going to be interested in what i'm in and hopefully together in through combination of that we find overlapping areas of the venn diagram and inside yep. that is our is our best direction or our best aim of moving forwards Yep. Well, that's where I found like other coaches. So like take Ben Bergeron, Ben is a CrossFit coach and working with him and his athletes like Katrin, what's beautiful about Ben is that he is an expert in his space, but he's confident in his space. He recognizes that he needs outside help and, and he's not insecure by bringing me in and providing my expertise into his equation. And I think that that says a lot about, about people out there that they realize that there's nothing wrong with 
only knowing what you know. Um, so long as you're not defensive, there's other coaches where I'll, so to, to clarify many cases in the CrossFit world, they have a CrossFit coach and then I feed into that program. So they're the, the, they're the ones that are managing the program. They're ultimately responsible, but I communicate with both the athlete and the coach, but they're making the choices. So if, if I make a recommendation, say, you know, if you want to get to a 520 mile, I need a third day of training per week. Collectively, they come back and say, no, the answer is, is that we're still sticking with two. All right, that's fine. That's fine. But what I want is, is I want that coach to be secure in, in my role and their role and respectful of that. And that is something that I've also realized is not commonplace. I think that Ben Bergeron is an anomaly where he's so comfortable in what he is able to provide. Plus, I, I don't want to do what he does. And I am, uh, he's is the best at, at, at that side of the equation. Um, and that's where those collaborations really work is that we're confident in our own space. Um, and that's where we want to stay. Yeah. Where there's others that say, I want to do everything because I can do everything and that I run from. Yeah. You know, I, I spoke to Adam Neifer, Justin Medeiros' mm -hmm. coach on this podcast, yeah. um, was probably, I think the second or third episode of the season. And we spoke about his outsourcing of, of skill sets and yep. how he kind of goes, okay, I'm going to, we're going to go spend time with Matt or we're going to go spend time with this strong man coach I know. Um, and his point was that, if we're all in alignment with the same goal, if we're all trying to, in his case, make Justin the fittest man on earth, then why would I get in the way with that? Like, and that's the goal. As soon as it becomes grow my Instagram following or make money from the business um, or whatever it is, or prove to myself that I am as, as good as I, as I hope to be, then that takes us away and into that place of, um, of, of sacrificing the ultimate goal for our own ego. Yeah, that's one of the things I, I look at a lot is, is I look at what is the coach, what are coaches really doing out there? I mean, are they committed to the athletes or do they have all these side gigs that they're leveraging their athletes in order to promote their side gigs? And uh, yeah, that that's you, you got to be careful with with coaches out there as they do have some success. I mean, obviously, I mean, there's you know, there's not one games athlete that's ever paid me a penny and I've never asked any games athlete to do anything for me. Um, but at some point in time, you have to make some money mm -hmm. at some point in time. And yeah, that's where it's a challenge is that, you know, you're doing all of this work. Um, but if you're distracted by what your purpose is, there's a, there's a conflict of interest and, and, we see that too. You know, one of the things that's so amazing about this, this time that we're in is that every coach is accessible, every one of them. And athletes out there can do their homework to find out whether or not those coaches are distracted, they've got too many side gigs going on, or what type of programming. Like I have people hit me up all the time. Can you just get me a better understanding of how you would program a, a 50 cal assault bike program? How would you focus on, you know, working on RPMs for biker? How would you focus on, you know, improving VO2 max and running? If a coach can't just quickly provide you a, a, a PDF with those examples, there's a problem. 
they should be readily accessible. And so that's the beauty of today is that we are all, I mean, anybody can reach out to me and I will see their message, whatever platform it comes on in a day. And if I have it and it's easy to send, I'm going to do it. That's what's nice about today. And if coaches aren't providing that service, then find somebody else because there are many that are motivated and highly skilled. They just haven't been given the opportunity yet. And that's where I was really lucky that I, you know, when Jason Kalipa, you know, it's funny, we were talking yesterday and and I'm going back to California um, on next Monday and I'm going to teach at his gym on the 23rd. Um, and I'm super excited about it, that the fact that we have a solid relationship, you know, since he left the sport in 2015 and I'm fired up after, you know, shoot, you know, six years after he's retired that I get to go back and teach. Um, but Jason, you know, the beauty is, is that he was a former champion and he did every single thing I asked of him. And what the best is, is that he actually performed and delivered, you know, in 2013, he won three out of the four endurance events and he got second place overall. Um, that's, that's a very cool thing. He gave me the opportunity to show others what I was capable of doing. And that's what people need to realize is that don't always necessarily go after a big name because they may not even have their credentials. They happen to be there at the right time. And that doesn't mean that there's others that are out there that are equally, or if not better, but do a little bit of homework and ask people, coaches for samples of their programming. And if they don't have it, then you're not important enough to them. Find somebody else. You need to find someone that's willing to commit the time. Yeah, exactly. Especially if you're working on a one-to-one basis. That's why we yep. give away so much for free. Because it's like, we want you to trust us and to know that we're good enough and to know that we're going we're right for you um, yep. if you're ever going to decide to work for us like, or work with us, sorry. Um, yep. Yeah, it's it's very, very important. Um, I'm going to have to wrap up very soon because I've yep, got I, another two podcasts today. Um, but let me let me wrap up with one question. Um, what do you do for a regular basis for your mental health and to kind of make every day count? Oh, boy, that's a tough one. So the only thing that I do, and I part of it is, is like my wife, she does meditation every day and, and she always is asking me and it's like, Phew. I can't do that. I can't, I can't, I, I can't like 30 minutes. Like I have to compress my day as it is, you know, with the things I have to get done. What I find very cathartic is when I go out for long endurance efforts, whether I'm on my bike um, and it doesn't matter what I'm, I'm, I'm doing, but the most cathartic is, is going out for a nice, easy run. And let me define what easy is. I stop and walk whenever I want. I am out there to spend time. So um, I take the pressure off of myself and I find those moments very peaceful. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's you know morning or evening, winter or summer, it doesn't matter. I find it, and I, and I mentioned this at the onset, I create most of my ideas in those runs. My most prolific time is the 30 minutes after I finish a run. So I'm sitting here on my keyboard, dripping in sweat, and I'm trying to document as much as I can remember that I sorted on that run. And it's problem solving. It's not creation. It's like, how can I personalize workouts 
for 2000 people when they all have different results and do it two times per week and make it easy on myself? How can I write a formula that can populate all the paces for all these individuals by just pushing a button? And I find those solutions there. To me, that's cathartic where I'm able to do these, these problem solving because what keeps me, the anxiety that I have is at night, which keeps me awake is that there's too many unanswered things because I'm trying to create instead of duplicate. I'm trying to invent um, and, and progress forward than, than doing the same thing that I did yesterday. And that, that is, that's what it motivates me, but it also challenges me. What I like there is you've, you've got a very specific problem, but you give your, and I'm sure there's intensity of over in terms of like, okay, this is, I'm here, I'm sitting down, I'm trying to solve the problem now, but you also, you're giving yourself the space. It's the like dualistic approach of like of intensity and recovery or work and recovery. It's like you have those spaces and, and giving yourself that space allows your subconscious to kind of mesh ideas together when your heart, when your mind's half on it, half on something else. Um, and those, those times are definitely the, the creative times. Yeah. Well, I used to, and when my times were not always as good as they are now. And, and, you know, my rough moments, I would intentionally starve myself for, you know, two days. And then I would go out and, and, and eat at, at a place that, that would provide me incredible gratification. And there would be that momentary like euphoria from having, and that was always cathartic for me back in my, my, um, bad years. Um, and I find that going out for a run is, is, <laughs> is, is, is much more positive than starving myself for two days. It can be. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> that, guessing that wasn't done with autophagy in mind and, and fasting. <laughs> I've done the well, same. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny what food and the satisfaction and, and, and what it provides, but it's interesting. The parallels, if, if you have decent fitness, and you can go out and do an hour long effort and, and um, the, the, the euphoria feels the same. And, but it's just, you know, it's not as embarrassing to say that, that, you know, I'm starving myself just to eat something, you know, a, a burrito with all of the fixings versus going out for an hour long run. Mm-hmm. Chris, where can people <laughs> yeah. follow you? Where can people find out about your seminars, sign up to like newsletters, all that kind of stuff? So uh, go to aerobiccapacity.com, aerobiccapacity's Instagram, uh, their Facebook page. And like I said, we we do provide uh, a lot of free information and content out there. If if people do have questions, um, you know, reach out on Instagram um, on aerobiccapacity and and just, you know, if if I have something and send me your email, I'll just send you um, that information. I really am sincere about that. I have never had a games athlete to pay me any money. If I can help somebody provide them with a simple PDF that takes me five minutes, I'm going to do it. Um, but if you want me to write your whole you know, master's program that you want to sell, that I won't even respond. But, but reach out. And if I have it, I'll respond and I'll send it to you. Um, I'm happy to help. That's why, like for you, it's like, you know, it's a privilege to be able to talk to you and, and you're an expert in your field. And I really respect what you do. It's an area that I don't understand, 
I wish I understood it more. Um, but I am, I am grateful to have like these types of conversations um, because it, it broadens my perspective in, in where I can go as a coach, knowing that there's other experts in the mental side that can keep pace. Well, thank you, Chris, because like I feel exactly the same way. Um, I don't want this to become too sycophantic, but I followed your work for a long, long time and you've really influenced me. And I know you've influenced our coaching team as well in, in some really great ways, especially as an example of a coach that we want to model. Um, so thank you very much for that. And thank you for your time today as well. Well, thank you. All right. Let's talk soon. What an incredible episode with Chris Henshaw. I was really blown away by this. I loved every single minute of our conversation. He's obviously a deep thinker and these kind of tools, you'll see he's, he's not a mindset coach. He, he doesn't say I this is what I explicitly do, but he's incorporated this into his coaching nonetheless and he is exceptionally wise and accurate in his description of what needs to happen. Alongside this episode, Rachel and I are going to be recording the debrief where we'll attempt to draw out some of the key points within this conversation with Chris and kind of boil it down into something that you can go away and apply. So make sure you subscribe to the show and I'll speak to you all very soon on another episode of the Limitless Athlete Podcast.